This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. We're continuing this series, Getting to Know You, as we step back to take a look at Jesus. I know that sounds very obvious as something we would do at church, but it's very important because sometimes familiarity brings a level of comfort where we tend to forget. We tend to forget exactly who Jesus is. We forget exactly what he has accomplished. And in the forgetting, our lives become a bit impoverished. And when we forget, it is very easy for the storms of life to overwhelm us. So that rather than rejoicing, we find ourselves despairing. This morning, I want us to recognize that God has given us a hope that transcends the grief and despair of this world. So with that in mind, I ask you to follow along as I read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. John, who is on the Isle of Patmos, has been given a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. I know there's a generation of us that hearing the, these lyrics will certainly bring nostalgic memories to mind. I'm not going to sing them, but I will share at least the first line with you. And those who are familiar with it can finish singing it in your mind. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, green estate in the land of the free. Of course, it's a reference to David Crockett. It's a man of legend and in many ways myth has surrounded him. But perhaps David Crockett is best known for the stand that took place at the Alamo in 1836. 
Between February 23rd and March 6th of that year, General Santa Diana of Mexico laid siege to the Alamo. Of course, the legend of David Crockett arose because of his feats that culminated in the loss of his life at the end of that battle. But what cannot be overstated is the effect his presence had both upon the men in the Alamo and upon those who were laying siege to it. It's been written that among those in the Alamo, his presence gave them courage. His skill with the rifle, his bravado, even his legend helped to to bolster them when the tide began to turn about them. What's interesting is that journals found, journals written by the soldiers in the Mexican army told quite a different story. Their diaries record that on certain days they would look and scan the ramparts of the Alamo looking for the man wearing the odd hat. And they would try to avoid those sections because it was known that the man in the odd hat had a certain level of skill with the rifle. The same man, but two very different reactions. And the reactions were made on how they perceived him. Encouragement on one side, fear on the other. Now, in like manner, our belief about Jesus will have an impact on everything in our lives. What we believe about Jesus will change our attitudes and our actions, our loves and our desires, our minds and our hearts. That's why I mentioned earlier that when we forget who Jesus is, it is very easy that we will begin to fall into anxiety and worry and fear rather than living with confidence, joy, and courage. Our lives will reflect our understanding of who Jesus is. That's why this vision of Jesus given in Revelation chapter 5 is so crucial. This vision is communicating to churches that are about to undergo persecution or are tempted to become apathetic because of the pleasures of life to trust in Jesus no matter what. This revelation of who Jesus is is meant to bolster the courage of believers so they will not fall into despair. It is meant to give us encouragement so that in the days where it seems that life is turned against us, we will not fall into a level of despair. It's a reminder that we need. This past year, a new word entered into the lexicon of the American and Western culture It's actually two words, doom scrolling, D-O-O-M, doom scrolling. Something many people do without ever realizing it. It happens usually in a scenario where you're getting ready for bed. Maybe you've got into, into your bed and you're under the sheets. But before you turn off the lights, you decide to take one last check on your phone, on your news feed, or on Twitter. You see that infections and the flu are up. Maybe the kids won't be able to go back to school. The next line you read, the economy is bad, prices are up. And so you keep scrolling and scrolling and it becomes like the old song from Heal, gloom, despair, and agony on me. This habit has become known as doom scrolling. 
where you go from bad news to bad news with an endless procession of negative online news. In fact, the Pew Research Center found that 66% of Americans feel worn out by the amount of news available. I'm really surprised the number is that low. Doom scrolling. That's why we need the good news of these visions in Revelation chapter 4 through 5. See, we often don't think about the middle of Revelation being a message of hope, but it is because in the apocalyptic genre in which Revelation is written, there's often a movement back and forth between earth where chaos is breaking out to a movement in heaven where things are calm and there is praise around the throne and we are reminded that God is in control of all things. Now chapters 2 and 3 are written to churches here upon the earth where the Lord is warning them or affirming them in certain characteristics. But now in chapters 4 and 5 the scene shifts to heaven. Chapter 6, it will go back to earth. So you have these interludes where we get this picture of everything in, on the earth from the view of heaven. And it's a reminder, don't worry. God is on his throne. Everything that unfolds on this earth does so under the authority of God. Now, as John is describing this vision of God's throne, notice in verse 1, he says as he looks, he notices that there is in the right hand of one seated upon the throne a scroll written on front and back and sealed with seven seals. Now the right hand carries the image, the connotation of authority and power. So it's communicating to us that whatever is written upon the scroll will be carried out by the one who is holding it. God is not lacking the power to fulfill his divine plan. He has the authority and the strength to do whatever he has written upon the scroll. And you'll notice the description of the scroll is that it is written on the front and the back and sealed with seven seals. That's the contract form that was very familiar in the time in which John wrote this. A Roman contract would be written on both sides and often sealed only to be opened by the parties to whom it pertained. It was a way of saying this is a very important document. It's understood from the context that this document contains the plan for God's culmination of history. Think about the weight of that document. Here is God's plan. In fact, chapter 6 and onward deals with the opening of the seals. It never gets to the opening of the scroll. And you think if opening the seals brings about everything that we read in Revelation, how much more powerful will the scroll itself be? And it's implied that everything that unfolds happens because of what God has written on the scroll. That there's a purpose in things. Now you and I operate from the vantage point. We don't always see God's purpose. We don't see how things fit together. But this is giving us confidence. That history is not out of control. Earlier this fall. 
my wife and I purchased as a gift to our grandkids. I find myself saying that a lot. Things we purchase on behalf of the grandkids. A small swing set playground to go in the backyard. Now, of course, this does not come assembled. And, of course, being the grandpa cheapskate, I'm not going to pay someone to come and assemble it. My wife's got confidence we can do it. She's got confidence we can do it. Now, we get this big box at the house, and we start unloading it, and I'm finding there's a lot of pieces to this playground. So I get out the instructions, and I'm looking over. That's the beautiful thing between husband and wife relationships. My wife is of the type, we'll figure it out. Let's just dive in. And I'm, no, no, we've got to read the instructions. And what I found is that on the boards were numbers. It's ingenious. Here is board number 35, and it's never board 1, 2, 3, or 4. It's always, this is board 5306. And this is board 7904. And you follow the instructions, and you piece them together. I didn't know how they went together. But someone designed a plan to where they would go together. And the amazing thing is that there were pieces that we would assemble, and it would say, set this aside until later. And then later, you get out the piece you assembled earlier and you put it together. Church, do you see where I'm going with this? You and I are from the standpoint of we're figuring out how things piece together. But God has the plan. We see things looking backwards, how they fit together. God sees things going forward. That's why something that happened maybe a year or two ago and we're wondering, Lord, what are you going to do with this? He's saying, that'll come into play later. Trust me. You see, our fear is when we feel like we are not in control. Well, let me let you in on something. We're not in control. Any illusion we have of control is just that. It's a vapor. And I don't say that to cause us to throw up our hands and say, well, it's pointless, I have no impact, why don't I just give up? But to say, remember that it is God in control. The one who redeemed you is the one who is overseeing history. The one who loves you is the one who has written how things will come out. God has the plan and he will continue to unfold it. John's dilemma is this question. How is this going to take place? That's why in verse 2, the angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, how's this going to happen? Now, keep in mind, God could have done it with just a word, but God chose to act in a way that you and I would come to know him. God is relational at his being. That's part of the mystery of the Trinity. He exists in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, all one, yet three distinct in their being. And he wants us to know him. So God chose to work his redemptive plan, his plan for history through the person of Jesus who we know in relationship. So the question goes out, who is able to open the scroll? The answer is amazing. Look at verse 3. No one. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under there. Think about the resumes of those who were in heaven. Abraham could have stepped up and said, God, I'm your friend. Yes, I messed up, but I was faithful. I can open it. God says no. Then you move to Moses. 
God, yes, I may have lost my temper, but you know what? I led your people. Yes, God, you helped me. But I led your people. I can open the scroll. No, not qualified. Isaiah, Lord, you allowed me to see. Lord, I was sawn in half for you. Surely I could open the scroll. No, Isaiah, you're not qualified. And John's response is one of despair. What does he do? He begins to weep loudly. I love that, that adverb, loudly. This is not just a, well, I wish somebody could open it. This is, whoa, God, what's going to happen? This is almost a sense of panic. Then comes the reassuring voice of one of the elders around the throne. Weep no more, John. Stop crying. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. The one who is worthy is the one who has conquered. So our understanding of Jesus begins here with two phrases that describe his being and a third that describes his actions. Notice he is described as the line of the tribe of Judah. This comes from the book of Genesis where Jacob is giving a blessing to his children. And he comes to Judah. Now, Judah is not the oldest. In fact, if memory serves me correct, Judah is actually the third oldest. But through the sins of the older brothers, Judah becomes the leader. And so Jacob says to him, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now, that's a way of saying, Judah, you're going to be premier. You're going to be the one recognized as the leader. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. Now to say Judah's a lion's cub, it's like saying, Judah, you're the lion. And in their minds in that time, there was no more of a majestic animal than a lion. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. Indeed, the lion is known as the king of the beast. And here is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is described here as a powerful, conquering warrior that induces fear. Often we don't think of Jesus in those terms, but there is indeed a mixture when we recognize who Jesus is. This tension was caught best, I think, by C.S. Lewis. In his book, the, well, actually the whole series, The Chronicles of Narnia. But in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where four children in World War II Britain are magically transported to a place called Narnia. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote in many ways in an allegorical form. Because the hero of the story is Aslan, who is a lion. And it's clear that Aslan represents Jesus. Now the children who have gone to Narnia have not met Aslan yet. Now, now bear with me adults. Let's, let's enjoy this for just a moment. Narnia is a place where the animals talk. Where the animals are living. And three of the children 
Peter, Susan, and Lucy. Their brother Edmund has gone and will eventually betray them. That's another part of the story. They've been taken in by Mr. and Mrs. Bieber. Mr. and Mrs. Bieber are talking with them about meeting Aslan. Susan asks, who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus had been captured by the white witch. Another part of the story. See, you're going to need to go read this. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that line. I love that line. <laughs> safe? No. But he's good. That's the warrior. Warrior, conqueror. But good. For he is the root of David also. Look at that other phrase. Once again, the setting is a mil one of the military. This goes back to David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11.10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand for a signal. That word signal means standard, like a, like a flag, the symbol you rally to. This root of Jesse will be the rallying point for the peoples. They'll look to him and know salvation of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious so this root of David is one who is more more than just a man he is the conqueror he is the one who will come like David to bring peace and stability to the nations once again the setting is a military setting because these are his credentials for conquering notice in verse 5 Weep no more. Now, if you were to skip over the two appositional phrases, the tribe of Judah and the root of David, listen to this sentence. Weep no more. Behold, the line of Judah has conquered. It is the fact that he is the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David that has enabled him to conquer. Now, this word for conquer is one that we are familiar with. We see it advertised a lot. It's a form of the Greek word Nike. Victory, victorious, overcoming. 
But the question is, what has he conquered? What has he conquered that gives him the authority to unfold God's historic plan? It has to be something grand. Well, we begin by looking at a survey of the scripture and see that he has conquered more than we could ever imagine. For example, in John 16, Jesus said this, In this world you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That word overcome could be translated conquered. It's a form of Nike. I have overcome the world. And church, by faith, we share in that victory. For everyone who has been born of God, that is born again, to be born again means you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, and you turn to him just saying, Lord, save me from my sins. The one who has been born again overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is faith that unites us with Christ to share in his victory. Little children, John wrote in 1 John 4, 4, You are from God and and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We share in the victory of Christ by being born again and by trusting him. Yet circumstances test our faith, don't they? See, this is where that challenge comes in between our belief on one hand and the reality of life on the other. Because I have to be very candid with you. There are some days I don't feel like a conqueror. There are some days, and I think truth be told, you would say the same. We don't feel like we're overcoming very much, but we're being overcome. We're almost like that boxer who goes out into the ring. He's got a manager in his corner, a coach that's very encouraging, says you can take him, but he gets absolutely pummeled first round. He comes back to his corner and his coach says, he didn't touch you, he didn't touch you, that guy didn't touch you, you're doing good, go back out there, you can take him. Second round, same thing. He comes back to his corner after that round. His eyes are starting to turn black and blue. And his coach says to him again, he didn't touch you. That guy didn't touch you. You're good. You're good. Go out and take him. Third round, same thing. He comes and he sits down at the end of the third round. Coach says to him, he didn't touch. He didn't touch. And that guy says, well, somebody watch that referee because somebody's killing me. You see, it's what we hear in this and we wonder, is something wrong with me? No. We are not home yet. We experience the ups and downs of life where at times our faith is tested. That's why there are times where we will experience that confidence of saying, you know what, the Lord is victorious and by His power and His grace I can overcome this. And there are other times we simply need to rest and abide in Him. And to say, Lord, I need you. There is a um, poem It was written in the 18th century, or about 18th century pirates. It was written by Thomas More. It's about a pirate named Andrew Barton. In one of the battles, Barton was wounded. And it's believed that he has said, according to the poet, I am hurt, but I am not slain. I'll lay me down and bleed a while. 
then I'll rise and fight again. You know, as we follow the Lord and we believe, sometimes we need those times where we just say, Lord, I'm hurting and I need to lay down a while. Jesus invited us to do that. Didn't he say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden? Those who are weary and heavy laden and come to him are those who believe in him. You see, the way we conquer is by trust and by love. Isn't it interesting? And and next week we'll dive more into verse 6. But I want you to look at what happens. John looks to see this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, this mighty conqueror. And we almost expect for him to to turn around and see this man standing six foot four, muscular, with a jaw like iron, set and standing. But you know what he sees? A lamb. (laughs) This is not what we expect at all. The lion is a lamb. And not only is he a lamb, but he is standing, but it's clear How this lamb is standing has to be miraculous because he can see clearly this lamb is standing though it had been slain. How how could John know the lamb had been slain just by looking at him unless they were on the body of the lamb, the blood, the marks? See, this is where we get insight into what he has conquered. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. Because death is the wages of sin. The way to destroy death for good is to destroy sin by living a sinless life. Then dying on behalf of those who do sin. It turns our world completely upside down. This is the mighty warrior, the one who conquered by sin and by love. Church, it's a reminder to us. The way we overcome is the way of the Lamb. Sacrificial love. We must follow the pattern laid out by the Lamb. In chapters 2 and 3, as every church is addressed, there is a promise held out to the overcomers I give to you. How do we overcome? Sacrificial love. And in a world that is consumed with power and might and authority and coercion, sacrificial love will stand out like a light in the darkness. This is the path that we are to follow as we share in the might of the conquering lamb. In the radio show This American Life, there was an episode entitled, Know When to Fold Them. This episode told the story of David Dickerson. David Dickerson had grown up in a Christian household. But he did not share his father and his mother's faith. In fact, when he turned 18, he left home. And when I say left, he left. He never went back home until 10 years later. He left when he was 18, and at 28, he comes back home. And he said that he came back home for one purpose. He was filled with anger and wanted to overturn his father's repressive faith. David said, I had all this ammunition, and I couldn't wait to use it. And he said, I remember thinking, this is a showdown because my dad and I are at war. Of course, David said, my dad didn't know this. 
But I was at war with him. And I was at war with all Christians. And I was just waiting for an excuse to use my ammunition. So we sat down to dinner, David says, and we just began talking. He said, my father innocently mentioned some mission work he'd been praying about. David said, that was my cue. I unleashed my fury. I rambled on. I attacked Christianity. I attacked everything he believed. And I knew that I was assaulting his dream. I was saying to him, everything you are excited about is misbegotten, a bad idea, and morally corrupt. David Dickerson said, my father didn't say a thing. He just let me vent my anger. And he said, when I had spent every round of ammunition, he said, my father simply looked at me. And he said, David, I'm really proud of everything you've done in your life. David said, I remembered looking at my dad and I thought, I, I was expecting him to argue, you know. I didn't expect him to win. But you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with goodness. What will overcome? The sacrificial love of God. Church, let's look to the Lamb. The line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Now I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. And I want to call us this morning to do something very difficult. I want to ask you to think of who you need to sacrificially love. Who is it that you, you need to show the love of Jesus to? I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying there won't be a price. As Jesus showed sacrificial love, he was crucified. But church, he also rose from the dead. And just as he overcame, have faith that as you walk the disciples' path of showing sacrificial love, he will be victorious. So I go back to the question I laid before you just a moment ago. Who is it that you need to show sacrificial love toward? A family member? Is it a co-worker? A neighbor? That may involve biting our tongues some, not saying what we want to say, but you know what? That's meekness. That's power under control. I'm going to pray for us that God will help us, for we need his help. Father, help us. Help us that as we look to the Lamb, the line of the tribe of Judah, the mighty warrior, the root of David, we will recognize that it is your love that overcomes. Father, help us to trust this. Help us to believe that even when it seems that life is falling apart, you are holding it together because your plan is perfect and it will come to pass. Help us to do these things, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.